I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. And while you're doing that, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer today because I'm going to do something unusual for Christmas time. Okay? And I made this decision early in the week. I'm going to do a two part sermon. And so the, the next part's going to land right on Christmas. Okay? You follow what I'm doing? And so this is going to be a very unusual two part ser- series. Because I really believe what happens at Christmas time is we get into what I call the Christmas mode. And the Christmas mode goes something like this. We have a checklist of things we got to do. Christmas letters, buy gifts, cards, go to this and go to this event. And, you know, and the sermons are like Christmas sermon one, Christmas sermon two, Christmas sermon three, right? And I've been preaching Christmas sermons for, 50, uh, for 30 years. And you can imagine how many sermons I have. And I decided to do something a little more radically different. So just hang with me. I'm doing this on purpose, but you'll see how it relates to Christmas. So let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your amazing grace. I thank you for the season that we're in. And even though it's a busy time, I pray that this year will be the most meaningful in many ways. I pray that our understanding will intensify, will, you'll give us insight. You'll also show us some of the pitfalls that we slip into. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to handle the challenges that life presents itself us to us, especially in times of great, tre- great stress, challenge, expectations. Many times people are uptight because they can't fulfill expectations or other people are upset because we haven't fulfilled their expectation. So I pray today, Father, that you'll speak into our life situation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. I want to begin by asking a question this morning. Why do we need Christmas? Well, the merchants will tell you why. I mean, if it wasn't for Christmas, most businesses would be gone. This is the year where the books start balancing out. For some people, oh, I love Christmas. Brings our family together. Many times other things don't do it, but Christmas does. For other people, it's like, why have Christmas? I have family coming over and we don't even get along with each other. And it's awkward. You know, why Christmas? You know, the first Christmas doesn't just happen in a vacuum. I don't think we really understand the Christmas story until we understand why we need Christmas. I mean, we've heard this Christmas beautiful story of, you know, angels coming down to shepherds, telling about a baby being born in a manger, and we know the story, and, you know, we have sanitized it. So often, and we've talked about that over the years, how we've sanitized the Christmas story and how it was really a very difficult moment in the life of Mary and Joseph. That's the reality for them. But now there are heroes. And, uh, you know, and how many know that a lot of times when we're in the middle of a trial, we don't even think we'll ever get through it. We wonder what to do. And then years later, we look back and we go, you know, that was, it was a little challenging, but I really grew through that experience. And we can see some of the positive side of the downside of our experience. So what necessitated the need for God to become a man? To live a sinless life and then die a very cruel death. 
The Bible states that we as human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. You know, I mean, we are the pinnacle of everything that God created in our world. Human beings are. And yet we recognize something happened. Bible says we're actually made in the very image of our creator. We are in many ways godlike. I'm not saying we're god. I'm saying we're like god. Very powerful. We have an ability to create, to reason, we have a will, we have intellect, we have emotions. Wow, there's so much about us that's very much like God. However, when God created humanity, we have the beautiful story, and that's where we're going in the book of Genesis. We're going to go to a paradise. We're going to a garden. How many say, I like Hawaii? I like paradise, especially when it gets to be minus whatever we're experiencing, right? You know, I know we have snowbirds here. You guys are in Arizona. That's still a desert. <clears throat> I like paradise. I like, uh, I like green, though. I like it green. I have to admit, I really like Hawaii. I've been there a couple times. Anybody, ever, anybody else been to Hawaii? Oh, a lot of you. How many say Hawaii's pretty nice? Yeah. And we have our Hawaiian friend, Dennis, and him and I talk a lot. Nice place. You know, I still remember when I was a Bible school student, we had a missionary come and say, there's a great need for ministers in Hawaii. And I prayed all night, Lord, please send me to Hawaii. <laughs> God heard my cry and sent me to Fort McMurray. <laughs> oh, by the way, they had white sandy beaches in Fort McMurray. I didn't realize they extracted it from the oil sands and dropped it at Lake Gregoire, you know. I go, God, I, I should have been more specific. That's not what I meant. Here we are in sinless paradise, and a temptation comes. A temptation that simply that God, our creator, was withholding from the created something wonderful. God's goodness was challenged. And as a result, the first human couple rebelled from an amazingly transparent and sinless life. And now we have this tainted life. The result was that the image of God was marred in us as humans, and now sin works literally at dehumanizing us. And the reason why I say it that way, what I mean by that statement of, of, of you know, dehumanization is simply that we're created as human beings to reflect the goodness and the nature of God, but sin begins to tarnish that. And we see that all the time. People are, you know, why does, you know, people, why is there evil? Why, why do some people do evil things? Sin. Sin tarnishes God's nature. As a matter of fact, we weren't designed to sin. One person says, yeah. How many know that we were not designed to sin? We were not designed to sin. I have to say that because, you know, we're so programmed in our mind to say, you know, to sin is normal. I'm telling you, you were not designed by God to sin. That's a whole new thinking for us, isn't it? God designed us so that we would never have to sin. I'm not saying we're sinless. I'm just saying we weren't designed that way. We were designed to reflect the goodness and the nature of Almighty God. But now with the birth of sin in the human family, sickness, alienation, death are the outcomes for all generations. But God, in his great mercy and love, has designed a plan to reclaim us all from this terrible state 
through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son of God. God designed a plan to restore us back into the image of God. I'm just feeding you guys good biblical theology. That's what this is. But when we understand it correctly, it begins to impact our thinking and our life. You know, beginnings are very fragile in life. This blatant temptation, this subtle spiritual attack against our first family. We see early in the life of Jesus, Herod, treacherous Herod, after discovering that the Magi had seen a star in the east, determined when they had saw it, and found out that this child that was to be born, the Messiah, had to be at least two or under, went to Bethlehem and slaughtered every male child, two and under. Sin. The enemy is always threatening when God is endeavoring to implement his plan. You know, we think of the life of Jesus. He starts out his life, we don't read very little about his childhood, one incident when he's 12. And then we read the story. He gets baptized. First thing we read in the Matthew's Gospel and Luke as well, it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I think one thing we have to always remember in this world We're in a battle. We're in a contest. And we forget it. Isn't that true? We just get living life. And then all of a sudden, something comes and blindsides us and goes, where did that come from? Well, I've entitled the sermon, When the Serpent Comes. Because we have an adversary that's going to come against our lives. We must realize we're battling against three things. Against the values of our society, which the Bible defines as the world. We're battling against our own sinful nature, and we're battling against the devil. So we got three elements that we have to be on guard about all the time. James warns us in his letter, he says that this world system is in opposition to God. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? That's pretty, how many say that's pretty strong language? I would say that's very aggressive language. How many say that's aggressive language? That if I, have, if I embrace the cultural value system, that I'm going to find myself on the wrong side of God. How many think that's an aggressive statement? That we're somehow betraying God, that we're, we're, we're actually violating our covenant with God. He calls us an adulterer when we do that. And we find ourselves at enmity with God. I don't want to be in that category, do you? I want to be loyal to God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want to be his friend. It says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Strong language. Now, he's not talking about befriending people. He's talking about embracing a value system that's abandoned God. Okay? We have to define the world correctly. John reminds us that the real victory in life is to trust God or to have faith in him. He says, for everyone born of God overcomes this world... And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. In other words, if you and I will walk trusting God, we are actually overcoming this world system. That's just how simple it is. Okay, so the very fundamental, simplest little thing you and I need to grasp and get is simply, I have to trust God. Everybody get that? And when you and I are trusting God, even though life may not make sense and we wonder where God is in our lives and we're questioning the goodness of God in our minds, the fact that you and I just say, God, I'm going to trust you. I can't figure out what's going on, but I'm just going to trust you. When you do that, you are overcoming this world. Faith overcomes the world. Faith is what brings us victory. It is 
that which overcomes the world, only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So how in the world, you know, having known all of this stuff, do we ever get entangled with sin? I'm so glad you asked that question. How do we drift from God? How does that drift affect our relationship with other people? How does a life of good intentions often become a life of destitution? How do we end up going the wrong way? Well, we don't have to go very far in the human story to see it. I mean, go right to our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, right? They drifted. They had a perfect situation going, and they messed it up. The tempter came as a servant to befriend our first parents, and as they say, the rest is history. Yet in each of our lives, before we get too upset with Adam and Eve, he comes to us. And we have our own challenges and our own temptations. And so we need to understand that when the serpent comes, how are we going to deal with it? We're all confronted with temptation. What happens when the serpent comes to us? What are the results when we fall for his line and we listen to what he has to say? And so there are three things I want us to consider. I call them three elements, three things. The first is that he always comes to us in disguise. We need to know that. Here in the place of paradise and innocence, where everything was good, the tempter came as a serpent. See, you and I have an advantage in the New Testament. We know a lot more about spiritual things, demons, all the rest of that. The Old Testament doesn't go into that. Just says the serpent was more crafty than any other creature that God had created. Now, as we read through the lens of the New Testament, we know that that serpent, according to the book of Revelation, is none other than Satan, the accuser of the brothers. Genesis 3.1 says he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. I want to just erode a thought. Satan is not the opposite of God. It's not God is good, Satan is evil. It's two primary evil forces going against each other. Listen to what it says here. God created the serpent. Now, how the serpent got corrupted, that's a whole new story. We're not going to go there today. Okay? Satan is not God's equal. He's, got, he's inferior to God. He does not know everything. He's not the all-wise God. He's not everywhere present at one time. We, gotta, we can go down a whole list. He's an inferior being to God. We need to know that. We forget that sometimes. We attribute to him amazing powers he does not have. But he always comes to us, you know, and he disguises his, his presence in a sense. He comes... Often, not as an enemy. That's not how he comes to us, folks. See, that's what we're looking for. We're, we're, we got our guard up against our, the enemy. But when he comes to us, he doesn't come that way. He comes to us posing as a friend and a confidant. I'm your friend. He comes often as a subordinate. I mean, he, he didn't come here to the man and woman as an equal to them. He came as a subordinate to them. Interesting position. He did not come as an equal to their standing. It's interesting that the enemy came to Jesus in the words of Peter. Remember that? 
story. It's an amazing story. Here's, here's Peter, probably one of the most amazing moments in his, his entire discipleship with Jesus. He's just made the greatest declaration. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for it. He says, Simon, listen. What is, you have just spoken, no one has ever told you. Jesus never told Peter. He said, my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. We have a revealed religion, folks. We need a revelation from God. Peter had that. And as soon as Peter makes that declaration in Matthew 16, immediately what happens is Jesus says, now I need you to understand what's going to happen to me. The Messiah is going to have to suffer, be betrayed, be crucified. And Peter is like beside himself. The Bible says... Uh, that he actually takes Jesus aside. And he says to Jesus, hey, he re- it says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Don't you love that? You know, you and I are sitting here thinking, really? How many think it may not be a bright thing to be rebuking Jesus? Peter's rebuking Jesus. He's, and you, you say, well, why? It almost sounds like Peter's a nice guy. He says, no, no, you don't have to do that, Jesus. You don't have to suffer. What Peter was actually saying is, I have an expectation of the Messiah that you're going to crush these Romans and kick them out, and right now you're just messing with my head. I can't even wrap my mind around an idea that the Messiah could be someone who suffers. Are we catching on? He, he was messing with Peter's mind. He was basically saying, this is my way, and you just don't understand it. And you know how many Christians in this life have an expectation of what God is about to do, and when he does not do what we think, we are absolutely crushed. Come on now. And I've seen people walk away from God, and I've seen all kinds of reasons. Now, the reason I'm not serving God today, we should, we should make a list of all of the reasons why people have turned their back on God. And you know what the primary reason is? God didn't do what I thought he should do. I had an expectation, and he didn't do it. That was your expectation. See, when you and I surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we're making him Lord. And we're basically saying, I'm the servant, you're the master, you tell us what we're going to do, and I just go along with it. And I may not always understand it. I mean, when I'm a child and my parents say, could you go do this? I didn't walk up to my dad and say, why are we doing this? You know, he would have just said, go do it. I'm doing the thinking, you're doing the doing. Right? Right? You know, sometimes God does that to us. I'm doing the thinking, you're doing the doing. Yeah, but I don't get why I'm doing this. God, he's he's the one that's in charge here. I think temptation comes to us in so many uh, subtle ways. You know, ideas that almost seem harmless. Let me give you an example of an idea that we know is true. People say, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. How many have ever heard that? Some of you have said it. Okay, unpack that for me. What you're basically trying to tell a person is church does not make you a Christian. That's what you actually mean, isn't it? Isn't that what we're kind of saying to people? Church does not make you a Christian. But when we make the statement, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, what we're basically saying, you can be a Christian without going to church. Right? Isn't that kind of what we're saying? But is that what God is saying? Well, give me an idea. Hebrews 10.25, let's not give up meeting together, some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let me explain something to you. Church is not my idea. 
It's not, you, yeah, but you're employed by the church, Pastor. Hey, listen. I, you know, I could have got a different job. Just pointing this out to you. It's not about me, and it's not about God. It's, it's God's idea. It's not our idea. It's what I'm trying to get at. And see, when you and I sit down here and go, well, you know, we don't need to meet together. Well, then all of a sudden, what would happen if nobody went to church? I'm just asking the question. How effective would Christians really be in this world? How would Christians really develop in their faith life? How many times have you come and you said, I was really discouraged and I had the wrong attitude. And I come to church and bang, God shows up and people are worshiping God and the Spirit of God and God speaks to me through the message and man, I came in one way and I left another. How many times has that ever happened? Anybody, has that ever happened to anybody here? Anybody qualify for that? Why is that important? Why is it important that we walk together in fellowship? Because isolated, the devil would eat us all up. How many are catching on? So we have to be very careful what we're enumerating to people because sometimes we say things, technically we might be right, but if we say it the wrong way, boom, we kind of dismiss things. I could go down and talk about you know, the spiritual disciplines and the grace of God and all the confusions that we have and you know, all the things that we say, and it, it just causes problems. But let me just move on here. Hayden Robinson says, when the serpent approaches, he does not come as a creature of ugliness. See, in our minds, we think, well, ser- serpents, you know, snakes. I don't like snakes. Ooh, I don't like them. Some people say, I really like them. They're beautiful. And other people say, oh, I don't like them. They're ugly. The point I'm trying to make to us here today is simply this. When Satan comes to you, he's not going to come to you in a form to you that seems ugly. He's going to come to you, you know, um, like he says here, the scene happens before the curse, before the serpent's crawling on his belly over the ground. No rattler here, warning of approaching danger. Satan simply slides into your life. I like that analogy. Slides into your life. Thank you, Hayden. It says, when he appears, he seems almost like a comfortable companion. I'm your friend. I'm here to help you. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to join your misery and keep it going. Right? Wow. Why am I saying this? Because Paul is warning the people in Corinth. He says this. Oh, Okay, he comes as a friend, but with an evil design. In other words, he comes without warning, often when less expected, and what makes his coming so deadly. Here's the deal, Paul's saying, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. So Satan disguises himself as being someone good. Years ago, there was a kind of a TV series called The Twilight Zone. Now, you have to be a little older to remember this. Anybody remember The Twilight Zone? Maybe in the reruns? It was kind of a weird show. You know, I watched it a few times. I'm not a big sci-fi person, but this, it, it, it had some really weird shows. But in this one particular one, an episode from 1960, an American is walking, he's taking a walking trip through Central Europe, and he gets caught in this raging storm, he staggers through the blinding rain, and he chances upon an imposing castle. It's a hermitage for a bunch of brotherhood of monks, and the reclusive monks are reluctant, but they finally take him in because the weather's so nasty, and later that night, the American discovers a cell with a man locked inside of it. 
An ancient wooden staff bolts the door and the prisoner claims he's being held captive by the insane head monk, Brother Jerome. He pleads for the American to release him. And the prisoner's kindly face and gentle voice wins him over. And so the American brother confronts Brother Jerome and he declares that the prisoner is actually none other than Satan, the father of lies, held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier he cannot pass. Well, this incredible claim is so ludicrous in the American's mind that he thinks the guy that's the prisoner is indeed right. The head monk's gone nuts. And he thinks he's mad. And as soon as he gets the chance, he releases the prisoner who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a puff of smoke. It's kind of an interesting episode, right? The stunned American is horrified at the realization of what he's done. Jerome responds sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night with whom you have turned loose upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American said. I saw him and I didn't recognize him, to which Jerome solemnly observes, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. We just don't see him coming. Okay? And that's really the premise of the episode. And really, that's the premise of this message, that often when he comes, we just don't expect it. It just comes on. Boom. He comes and disguises his purpose. He comes as a false message, messenger to question God's word and God's character. He never says to Eve, I'm here to deceive you. He doesn't come that way. We're just having a religious discussion, you know, right? Satan would have you believe he's just there trying to get you to get a little clarity on some of the issues that he's a little confused by. Is that really what God says? Is this really what God means? And secondly, we can see that he comes via, as I already said, a subordinate. I've already, well, I, I see what I did. I already did that part. Okay. So let me move on to the second element. He comes bringing distrust. He comes bringing deception and lies. He comes to challenge and question God's word. And it says here in Genesis 3, 1, he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You can see that the temptation came in the form of a suggestion rather than an argument. He's not arguing. It's real nice about it. We can discover that we can make the word of God subject to us, or rather, we become subject to the word of God. By the way, this is the, this is the crucial issue. We either submit to what God is saying, or we make the word of God submit to us. You know, it's really powerful. Are we going to believe what God says? Are we going to act on what God says? Whenever we question what God says, we place ourselves in the position of judge. Well, I think this is what it means, and this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes it can open the door to all kinds of problems. Barton Payne says, To this day I can still recall my shock when I mentioned these facts, and they were actually discussing Daniel's predictions to a critically-minded friend, and he replied, I know more about Daniel than Jesus did. Okay, that's an interesting statement. Now you say, well, why would he make a statement like that? Well, he's probably saying, you know, I've got more tools today to understand. I'm going, hey, who's Jesus? Yeah, thank you very much. I don't think you know more than Jesus knew about Daniel. You know, but relativism is a prevailing philosophy in our culture. We're dealing with moral relativism today. And you say, what is moral relativism? It's simply that 
you know, everybody has an equal take on what's the truth. You know, there's no real right or wrong. There's no real moral authority. And so Bill Hybels was sharing a story once of a man who became deeply involved in, in part of, you know, the New Age movement, which, by the way, I'm already telling you, it's not New Age. It's Old Age Hinduism imported and repackaged for North American consumption. Okay? So he's, you know, he said he was deeply involved with this for about five years, and he said, well, what caused you? You know, Hybels is, you know, this, Pastor Hybels pastors a huge church. He met this guy, he says, well, you know, he's part of his church, and he goes, well, what caused you to... Uh, have second thoughts about this. And he said, well, you know, it was the moral anarchy, he said. I became part of a group, and we used to sit around and talk about what my truth was, and one person would say, my truth is doing and saying and acting out this way, and another person would say, well, that's great, that's your truth, this is my truth. And he said, then I got the idea that the wife I'd been married to for many years was not as beautiful and wonderful as another person in the group, and so, you know, and, and who also said her truth was that they ought to get married to another person in the group. And so he said, I more thought about it. After a while, I decided, yep, that's my truth too. And so we, we got our truths together. I divorced my wife. And uh, my wife became very upset about that, by the way. But I said, well, honey, don't get upset. This is my truth. You see, how are you going to argue with that? And he said, it was only a short time afterwards, and you're going to like this, that someone said, you know, there's this church in South Barrington, Illinois. You ought to try it out. You know, I think you'll connect with it. And he said, I came to the church. And he thought it was a new age church because there were all these people showing up, you know, thousands of people. And he says, I came in here and I walked and thought, this is wonderful. I didn't realize there were so many people like us that thought the same way. And he said, that day you gave a message about human beings standing morally accountable before a holy God. Whoops, got in the wrong place. And while you were talking, I became conscious for the very first time of my sin. And I knew I was playing games I was just making up the truth according to what I wanted. That all I was doing was fabricating so I could live the life I chose to live and somehow feel good about it. But at that moment, I was standing in the presence of a holy God and I fell on my knees and received Christ and forgiveness. You and I are going to change the rules all the time to suit ourselves, aren't we not? And that's what our culture is doing today. See, the devil says, hey, if you eat of the tree, he says, you're not going to die. As a matter of fact, he says to the woman, you're going to become like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. See, God knows that, and you don't know that, and God's keeping you from that, therefore God's not good. Why would God hold that good information back from you? And seeing that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes and was able to make one wise, well, she took. Powerful. You know, it's really interesting because I, I think he's challenging the goodness of God's character. You know, the fact that God sets a boundary in our life is for our good. But we don't see that. We don't like boundaries. Because inside of us, there's this little rebellion going on. I don't like that boundary. And how many know you don't have to teach children about boundaries? I mean, they're always pushing them, are they not? And if you don't give a child a boundary, you know what happens? They just keep going. And why do they do that? Because they're looking to know where the boundaries are. Because, folks, one of the things you need to understand is until you find the boundaries, you don't really know what love is. Love helps to define for us what healthy boundaries are. 
And a lot of people today in our culture, they don't have an idea what boundaries are anymore. And they don't feel loved. They don't even feel secure anymore. They're just running all over the place. They're just trying to be quote-unquote free. But their freedom is leading them into bondage. See, he says in Genesis 3, 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the reason why God is forbidding this fruit in your life is that God knows you'll be like him. Folks, they were already like God. They were already like God. God had made them in his image. But the enemy is saying, he's holding out on you. If he really loves you, he'll do this for you. So why does God set boundaries? To protect us. And the more we get to know God, the more we realize that whatever he says is off limits is for our good because he's a gracious gracious father. He knows the pain and the consequences that occur when you and I sin. You know, Victor Hamilton, he's a commentator. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says this, very interesting. He's pointing out something regarding Eve's desire for the fruit. It says, here is the essence of covetousness. It is the attitude that says, I need something I do not now have in order to be happy. I need something I do not now have in order to be happy. That's a powerful statement. And I'm going to say it this way. If you, if, as a Christian, we're Christians in this room, I'm going to make a very radical statement to you. I think it's radical. You have exactly what you need at this moment in your life from Almighty God. You just don't know it yet. Because if you have God in your life, you have everything you need. And if God knows you need something else, he will bring it into your life in his good time. Because he always does what is appropriate in the right time. You and I think, you know, God, your timing is wrong. I mean, how many of us have felt that way? Hey, God, where are you? You know, I needed you to do something yesterday. God goes, yeah, but I'm training you in the area of spiritual development. I want you to learn patience. I want you to learn how to, you know, most of us, what we really want is to be immature, spoiled brats. I'm just being honest, right? I pray you do. I tell God what I want. I tell God what I need. I, t- I tell the universe, the creator, everything I need so God will run around and do what I want. God goes, no, 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 you don't understand. When you come to me, I have a plan for you. And my plan is unlike your plan for you. And one of the great things we have to do in our Christian life is to lay down our agenda and our goals and our plan and say, your will be done and I believe that you love me so much and designed me for a specific purpose that if I can just trust you and surrender to you that you're going to bring everything I need at your right moment. And I can live in absolute contentment. I have learned the secret to be content in any and every situation. You know what's amazing? Isn't it it great when you can be content no matter what your circumstances are? Most people in North America are not content because they think they need a certain level of this or that in order to be content. As a child of God, you and I can be content every single day, regardless of our outward circumstances. Because Christ can bring the strength into our lives. I thought this was a very powerful statement about covetousness. And maybe we're more covetous than we realize. You know, the Bible's first recorded sin is simply stated, she took, she ate, she gave. She shared her sin. 
Let me move on to the third element. And it's the destruction that is caused when we listen to the voice of the enemy. Once we engage in dialogue, we're going into trouble. We start reasoning things out and we're really no match for the enemy. Griffin Thomas says this. He's an Old Testament devotional writer. He says, had she resisted at the very outset, she would not have fallen. For it is a universal law that if we resist the devil, he will what? He will flee from us. Nothing is more remarkable in the whole history of man's moral life than the powerlessness of the devil to overcome to overcome us apart from our own assent and consent. In other words, he can only cause us to fall if we agree. If we say, I'm not interested and walk away, we overcome him. So he's tugging on something inside. He's appealing to something. If we resist, he flees. If we yield, he wins. It's this simple fact that constitutes man's ultimate responsibility for his actions. He can never say, this is he's saying of all of us, none of us could ever say, I was overpowered in spite of myself. See, I was the victim here, God. Adam tried that trick, right? All that he can say is, I was overpowered because of myself. In other words, I got to take responsibility of what I did wrong. How many think that's, that's the first door to freedom? One of the biggest problems in our culture today, we don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. We want to blame somebody else. And that's exactly what Adam did. That's exactly what Eve did. Satan, he didn't have anybody to turn around to. They had all blamed him, right? Well, the devil made me do it. Has anybody ever heard that expression before? No, you succumb to temptation. Whenever a relationship with God is, a, is affected by our sin, it affects how we relate to other people. It always diminishes our relationships with others. What are some of the ways that this occurs in our relationships? We can look at some hindsight here, or some of the insights we see from this, of our first parents failing, Right? Immediately, they realized that their condition had changed. They were now naked. But they were always naked. They just had never realized it. What they experienced was shame. Shame is a terrible thing. They had never lived with shame up until this moment. Isn't it great not to live in shame? How many think it would be awesome not to live in shame? We don't have to live in shame. Isn't that great? We can live delivered from all shame. That's the, that's the love that God wants to bring into our lives. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's very interesting to me that the moment we do something wrong, we feel we have to do something to make it right. And generally, what we do is the wrong thing. What we need to do is go to God and say, I messed up. I need to take ownership for my behavior and not try to solve all the problems. You know, let's stop trying to play God. Only God can save us. Why do we need Christmas? Because we need a Savior. That's the right answer. And the reason why people don't understand Christmas is because they don't see themselves in need of a Savior. And the biggest problem we have in North America is most people in North America are satisfied to live in sin. And they feel like sin is the normal condition. And I said to you earlier, we were not designed to sin. We were designed to be like God. Wow. 
And we're, all we're doing is dummying down our culture to say it's okay to be a sinner. And we live now in bondage and shame and heartache and broken relationships. And we're saying this is the new norm. Isn't that what we're doing as a culture? And I'm saying no way. This is messed up. I'm not buying it for a minute. And if you want to tell me that the reason why you're doing the wrong thing is because you were the victim and that's why you're victimizing people and I'm hearing this over and over and over again, I'm saying all you're doing is justifying your sin and you will never be free and you will always live in shame. Why Christmas? Because we're sinners in need of a Savior. Wow. I'm going to just move over here and just close with this. If Satan had come to Eve that early morning and said, hey, look, sign this paper. Say that you're through with God, she would have never signed it. But before we cast the stone of responsibility solely at Eve's feet, let's remember she was deceived while Adam, standing by her side, willfully took and ate. He knew better. When the serpent comes... He never comes dragging the chains that enslave us. He comes bringing a lure to entangle us. He offers us pleasures, knowledge, fame, riches, but never mentions the price tag that he's carrying. That's what entraps us and eventually destroys us. If we don't learn simply to trust God and his word, to know the character of God... You know, I've tried to say this over and over again in this church. I said, please settle these two thoughts in your mind. Etch them. Drill them. You know, I don't know how you're going to do it in your heart. You know, if, we, if your heart's stone, chisel them. <laughs> you know, I'm just teasing. But here's what you need to put in your mind and just hold on to it for all your worth. Number one, God is good. God is always good. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God is still good. You just don't, at this moment, we don't understand what's going on. He's still good, okay? I always say to myself, God is good. God's a good God. And God loves you. God loves me. He died for me. He loves me. So no matter how bad I can get, I can just say, God loves me. You see, that's why Paul could write in Romans 8, 28, he can say, and we know that all things All things work together for good. You know, there may be a devil coming and tempting, but I'm going to continue the sermon next week. No sooner had the serpent, he hadn't even got out of the way, and who shows up? God was there the whole time. But I've entitled that sermon, When God Comes. And when God comes, there's hope. When God comes, there's forgiveness. Amen? When God comes, he can change our pitiful, miserable condition that we find ourselves in. Yes! Why Christmas? Because we need it. I'm not just a merchant that my business is going to go out of whack if we don't have Christmas. I'm a person that if we don't have Christmas, I'm doomed. I need Christmas because I need a Savior. 
I can't save myself. These guys tried. They sowed fig leaves over themselves. We're doing all kinds of fig leaf sowing in our generation. And it's totally inadequate. It never eradicates the shame. Let's stand. (coughs) Excuse me. Just with every head bowed this morning, I want us to pray. I believe God's Spirit is speaking into our hearts. You know, if you're a child of God, Satan's going to come to you. He's already entrapped the majority of the human race. Do you realize that? He came to people who knew God. We should not be surprised. He's going to come to us. He's going to come to us offering us stuff that we think we need. Can I tell you, only God can meet the deepest need in your soul. You see, a lot of times we think, you know, if I just had the right person in my life, I'd be okay. I'll tell you, when you, when you meet another person, they're broken too. No matter how wonderful they are, they're still going to mess up. You see, and I think it's wrong of us to hope that we're going to have a person come into our lives that will meet our needs. See, that's selfish if you think about it. Right? I think what I'm saying here, can I just tell you, I am so needy, my poor wife Patty could never meet all the needs in my life. She's a beautiful girl. But she could never meet every single need in my life. I am too needy for that. And I figured that out a long time ago. I go, God, if you don't meet my needs, I'm, I'm hooped, you know. But if you'll meet my needs, then I'll have something to bring to our relationship. And that's true of my friendships with people or even as a pastor in this church, you know. Unless you come and meet my needs, unless you and I connect God, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer the people in the church unless God comes. You see? So we need to start looking to God to meet our needs. Then I think we need to say, God, I need to surrender to your will for my life. And not, you know, why did Peter get into trouble? Why did he succumb to the voice of the enemy? He became the voice of the enemy. I don't think Peter got demon-possessed. That's nonsense. I think good Christians sometimes say to each other things that are actually Satan is saying through them. Come on now. And the people that are the closest to us sometimes can be the voice of Satan to us. It's the truth. See? And sometimes we say things that are the voice of Satan to other people. How do we do that? Because we're speaking out of our own heart and mind. Sometimes we think we're doing a person a favor. You know, you don't deserve that. It's not about deserving, guys. You, You don't know what God's doing in a person's life. God's taking us on a journey. Amen? How many here, you know, just feel like, you know, Pastor, I hear what you're saying this morning. That there is an enemy and he's attacking my life. And I need to not listen to those voices and I need to trust the voice of God. I need to just overcome the voice of this world by trusting what God says. I need to surrender my life to the will and word of God. You know? And let God work out things. And where I fail, go to God. Say, I'm not going to be a fig leaf sower. 
I'm just going to acknowledge, God, I'm naked and I'm feeling shameful about it. Can you forgive me? What's God going to do? No. No, he wants to do that. Amen. Amen. Does the serpent come? All the time. But you and I need to stand strong on God's word. Believe that he is good. Believe that he is loving. Amen? So let me pray for us. This is a very difficult time. I know Christmas is the hardest time of the year. I already know that. Because we all have these, you know, the Waltons expectations. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Good old Waltons, you know. Yeah. We live happily ever after. We all want that. Can I tell you, the fairy tale is real, but it'll probably lived out in heaven. Hello? The fairy tale is real. You know, that's why we have good fairy tales, because they're actually based on a true idea. But the ultimate expression of what we want, what we want is heaven on earth. And what I'm telling you is you'll probably get it in heaven. And while we're down here below, we're fighting battles, Okay? How many here are fighting a battle? Just raise your hand. That's you. You're fighting a battle right now. That's, that's great. Let's, let's commit our battles to God. Let's let... I didn't say this one important part of my sermon. You know what happens? When Jehoshaphat was afraid and the serpent was coming to him, you know what God told him? Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I am with you. You will see the salvation of your God. When Israel was camped by the Red Sea, what did he say? Stand still and you'll see the salvation of your God. See, Paul writing to us in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 says what? When the evil day comes, he just says, put on the whole armor of God. And after you've done that, what does he mean by that? Just trust God and then stand and let God work. We try to help God. And you know what we do? We make things worse. It's really hard sometimes to do standing. (laughs) How many know standing still is hard sometimes? Because most of us want to run, and the others of us want to fight. Fight, flight, remember that pattern? But God's saying, just stand and trust. I'm going to pray that we'll do that this year. Lord, I just pray today that you'll help us to stand still and see your salvation against the enemy's devices and schemes May you destroy the the information that he's feeding our minds. May we begin to identify the source of the questioning, the doubts, and the frustrations as really the enemy attacking our minds. And Lord, may we just, you know, it's okay to have an honest doubt. We're not talking about that. We're talking about allowing fear to rule and reign in our minds. Lord, I pray today that that will go and that faith will arise within us and that we will stand still and trust you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.